We're looking at verses 7 to 11 in chapter 1 this evening. But I want to discuss the macro structure of the entire chapter. We've made our way through two sections already. third section is before us this evening. And you'll notice that I already gave you a clue about the first section, namely verses uh, 2 to 3 of chapter 1. What would the second section be? What would the B section be as far as the verses are concerned? So what did we look at last week? There's the clue. Four to six. All right, so two to three, as you may recall, was a universal or cosmic perspective. You notice the phrase all or all things in verse two. However, verses four to six was not universal or cosmic. It was what? As you look at verse four. Now, Marge, I know you didn't want me to call on you, but there you are. Your head's up and your face is shining. Territorial or national. National or particular and opposite to universal because Judah and Jerusalem are mentioned in that verse. Now we come to the next section, what would be the B prime. And obviously, since I placed it under the B, it's going to be what kind of a section? Particular, again, nationalistic or particular, again. And how do you know that? Or at least we haven't assigned the verses. At least it's going to begin with verse 7. We haven't assigned the verses per se, but you'll notice from the header that we're looking at 7 to 11. So uh, as you look at those verses, what tells you that that's a more particular or nationalistic section? What do we have in verses 10 and 11? Yes, we have the geographical sections of Jerusalem, or some of them. And then in verse 12, you'll notice that we have the name Jerusalem. Consequently, we can suggest that this B prime section extends from verse 7 to verse 13. A little further than we're going to go tonight, and I'll explain uh, the method of my madness later, which leaves the last section, the A prime section of this macro structure, beginning at verse 14 and ending with what verse would you guess? Verse 18. And this is, once again, parallel to A. A prime is universalistic or cosmic, And you'll notice the very last words in verse 18, all the inhabitants of the earth. All right, so we move from the general to the particular. And then we move back from the particular to the general in a chiastic style here in this entire first chapter. So it has its own very uh, neat uh, structural paradigm. All right, now that brings us to a microstructure with respect to the verses 7 to 13. And I'm looking for something in this section, particularly at the beginning in verse 7, which may be uh, parallel 
to something in verse 14. What do you notice as you scan verse 7 that jumps out again at you in verse 14? The day of the Lord is near. Yes, there are duplicate phrases so that we could say verses 7 to 13 are a micro unit of this first chapter. And verses 14 to 18 are a second micro unit based upon that phrase, near is the day of the Lord. Now, there have been some commentators who have suggested that this parallel between verses 7 and 14 is an inclusio. What do you think of that suggestion? You like that idea that that's an inclusio? You'll say, well, you like inclusios a lot, Denison. You're always talking about those. <laughs> Bob, you're shaking your head. You don't think it's an inclusio. No, because the one is starting out talking about Judah, and this starts out uh, on a macro level. Okay, so you think there's a distinction between the two sections. One is more particular and the other is more universal. That's a good observation on your part. What else would we have here if we're thinking structurally? Now, Marge, I'm going to pick on you. Because you've nailed this previously. As you look at those two sections, they begin with the very same phrases, don't they? What do we call two literary units that begin with parallel phrases? An anaphora. That's right, an anaphora. So we do not have an inclusio here. We actually have an anaphora, two sections of this first chapter that begin with the declaration, the day of the Lord is near. Now, we're only going to look at verses 7 to 11 of that third unit, namely what we've mapped out in the macro structure as the B prime section of the chiasm. We're only going to look at verses 7 and 11, and we're going to do that because they have their own integrity. They have their own very interesting pattern. And we'll begin by looking at the parallels in verse 7 and 8. So as you scan verse 7 and 8, what parallel words do you find? Sacrifice Sacrifice appears in both verse 7 and verse 8. So you can fill in your blank there that sacrifice will be uh, occurring uh, in duplicate fashion. Now, as you look at verse 8 again and compare it with verse 9, what word do you see that occurs in both 8 and 9? Punish. That is correct. Punish occurs in verse 8 and once again in verse 9. So you may fill in the blank there with those two words, one underneath the other. Then in verse 9, you have a phrase. It is you have a two-word phrase that also reappears in verse 10. So as you scan the rest of verse 9 and you look at verse 10, 
What two words do you see repeated in those two verses? We only need two. That day. day. The phrase that day appears in 9 and it appears at the beginning of verse 10. Now, as you look at verse 10, you're looking beyond the phrase that day. You're looking for a word that occurs in 10 and also reoccurs in 11. And what word do you see? Whale, yes, very good. Whale occurs in verse 10 and once again in verse 11. Now, what do we have here? We have a carefully constructed segment or sequence of les mots crochet. That's a French phrase, which means what, Art? Uh, Connected words. Or crocheted words, like you would crochet uh, with, uh, with crochet hooks. That uh, phrase in French uh, gives you the idea of a crocheted pattern, for any of you who have done crocheting. And there's an English word that means much the same, the English word concatenation. Now, literally, concatenation means to do what? Does anyone know? Join together. Join together how? End to end. End to end, okay, close, like a what? Like a chain, exactly. Like a chain link fence or like the consecutive links in a chain. All right, so you get the idea that Zephaniah is chaining his verses together. And he's using words which repeat themselves from one word, from one verse to the next, in order to hook them or crochet those verses together. So we can describe this as a crocheted concatenation. Namely, these verses are hooked together in a literary sequence. This is intentional. He's done this on purpose. He's done it to create this flow and this integrity of the flow of his description. Now, you'll notice when you wrote the words in on the right-hand side of that little uh, section where you actually placed the words that repeat themselves, there looks like some kind of funny little Uh, outline there or diagram there. What does that diagram look like? Yes, it looks like a series of descending steps, doesn't it? Okay, so this concatenation or this crocheted or hooked paradigm can also be called a stair-step parallelism or a staircase parallelism. And this is the way you would mark, mark, mark it, mark, excuse me, mark it out, mark it out, map it out. I'll get it out here sooner or later. And you would actually build the words and the verses like the descending staircase. So <clears throat> this is an indication of the uh, intense brilliance, the literary creativity and style of Zephaniah. This is no minor league prophet. Even though he's ignored and uh, virtually unheard of in evangelical circles, in many uh, churches, many broad churches, you'll never hear Zephaniah ever preached on. Okay, well, you you see what you're missing. You see this this richness, which is part 
of his Hebrew style and his literary and rhetorical uh, flourish. All right, now, there is a, a leitmotif. What does that phrase leitmotif mean? A key theme, light key theme. What is the key theme? It's Yom Yahweh in Hebrew. And what does Yom Yahweh mean? Professor Sanborn? Day of the Lord. And as you look through this section from 7 to 18, you'll see that phrase occur over and over again. It will be varied with that day, which we've already observed in verses 9 and 10. All right, so we're dealing in Zephaniah 1, 7 to 18, with a key theme in prophetic eschatology, namely the day of the Lord. Now, I'm not going to go into that tonight. It wasn't one of the reasons I'm holding off on doing verses 12 and 13, because I want to deal with the concept of the Yom Yahweh, the day of the Lord, next time. So we're going to explore that concept more thoroughly. Tonight, we want to look at the rhetorical and literary style of these five verses, 7 to 11. Question, David? Well, you Um, it, <laughs> I don't know whether there's a choice between the two. <laughs> uh, it's a term that occurs frequently in the Old Testament prophets. Is that uh, satisfactory, or are, you, or are you saying it doesn't have a particular theological or eschatological meaning? Um, it might be different to us today than the listener in the day that it was uh, prophesied. All right, now that's a good observation, so we'll hold that to next week. I'll attempt to, to address that when we address the broader issue. Now, the fulfillment of this day of the Lord, and in some sense this will anticipate the answer to the question that David just raised. <clears throat> what is the fulfillment of the day of the Lord which Zephaniah is projecting or prophesying? Go ahead, Randy. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. I want the date of the fulfillment. The event of the fulfillment. The Good Friday. The what? Good Friday. No. Was it the 586? Yes, it's 586 B.C. It's the destruction of Jerusalem. The day of the Lord that he is projecting is the devastation and destruction of Judah and Jerusalem by Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. <clears throat> Now, of course, does that have a near and far distant reflection and fulfillment? Of course, there's a, there's a potential answer in that question, but we'll leave that for next time. Now, we want to go back and examine the verses 7 to 11 in some detail. And you can follow on your handout as I also attempt to replicate the style of the prophet. Beginning with verse 7, he begins with onomatopoeia. He duplicates a causal clause. He inaugurates a chiasm and does all this in ironic parody. Let's unpack then the brilliant rhetoric of Zephaniah in this verse and follow that thread 
through this unit, verses 7 through 11. Onomatopoeia refers to a word that sounds like the word itself. Good example in English, hiss, swish. Verse 7 begins with a Hebrew word, hus, which also appears in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20, a passage often used as a liturgical call to worship. The Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth hus, be silent before him. You will notice, those of you that have the New American Standard, that the margin on this seventh verse catches the force of the Hebrew onomatopoeia with hush, hush, hush. You hear it, don't you? Hush, be silent. An appropriate call for all worship of the Lord especially in OP circles where there is more noise than reverent silence before God our Lord at the beginning of worship. Hush, be silent, be still. You are entering into the presence of a holy and righteous God. The phrase, before the Lord God, which is Adonai Yahweh in the Hebrew here, suggests a temple setting, a temple setting for Zephaniah's proclamation. That is to say, Zephaniah is likely standing in the temple courts, and he is addressing the worshiping audience before him with a call to be quiet. Hush, hush, you are before the face in front of the eyes of Adonai Yahweh. Be still, hush, reverent silence is what is appropriate in such a setting. Now, why is this silence warranted, and why is it imperatively commanded? Two key clauses follow. The Hebrew key clause is a causal clause. It means because, or sometimes translated for. Hush before the Lord. Be silent before Adonai Yahweh, because, dot, 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 and because, dot, dot, dot. The duplication of the because, or for, is not only an emphatic rhetorical device, it is an expanded rhetorical device. Hush, because first of all, the Yom Yahweh is near. And second of all, that day is a day in which the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. Duplicate key causes. 
duplicate causal explanation. Duplicate becauses. Now, in the Hebrew text, Lord, or Yahweh here, and sacrifice appear in verse 7 in that order. Yahweh, sacrifice. This is important to observe because the Hebrew text of verse 8 has that order in reverse. In verse 8, the Hebrew text reads, sacrifice, and then Yahweh in that order. Thus we have, between verse 7 and verse 8, a chiastic mirror. A chiastic mirror reflecting the concatenation of verse 7 and verse 8. Now take a deep breath and pause to marvel at what you have had pointed out to you. It is in the Hebrew text. It arises from understanding the way the text is written and constructed. This is no amateur writer. This is a brilliant, brilliant rhetorician and literary stylist. This is remarkable, remarkable stuff, even given divine inspiration. Take a deep breath and appreciate the literary ability and brilliance of the prophet Zephaniah. You're not done. We're going to show it throughout the rest of the four verses of this unit. As the Lord God has prepared a sacrifice, so he has summoned guests to that altar. Zephaniah uses a word which can mean sanctified here. The New American Standard translates it consecrated. That word in the Hebrew is from the root kodesh. And kodesh means holy. Something holy in Hebrew is set apart. It is consecrated to holy use. It is sanctified for holy purposes. The Lord God has sanctified or set apart his guests invited to his sacrifice. They have been set apart They have been sanctified for a special invitation to come to the sacrifice the Lord has prepared. And who are these guests specially invited to the altar of the Lord's sacrifice by the Lord's messenger, Zephaniah, in the Lord's dwelling place, the temple? They are the idolaters of verses 4 to 6, and potentially verses 2 to 3. They are the parade of idol worshipers who approach their devotions as showtime, a glitzy display of the glamour of Baal, a gaudy fashion statement from those who adore the stars and the moon and the sun 
a pious parade of devotion to Moloch or Malcolm, who lay their infants in his metal furnace for them to be incinerated. These are the guests consecrated to the Lord's sacrifice. Idolaters showing off their vanity. Idolaters showing off their inhumanity. Idolaters showing off their sexual perversity. Idolatry as showtime. A vain, immoral, self-gratifying facade covering the dark side. And God the Lord, God the Lord has prepared an event which will uncover the dark side, the evil, wicked dark side of idolatry. Come to the Lord's great sacrifice, you his consecrated and sanctified guests. Come behold the sacrifice the Lord has prepared, a great holocaust offered before the Lord Yahweh is near. It is the day of the Lord. A day when the Lord presents his specially invited guests a sacrifice. A sacrifice for the consecrated invitees. An offering for the sanctified ones called to attend. But as the day of the Lord arrives, mirabile dictu, the guests are the sacrifice. On the day of the Lord, ulala, the those who victims, the, those who are consecrated, are the victims. The day of the Lord brings those sanctified and set apart to the Lord's sacrifice to His altar. Brings them to the Lord's altar to be slain, to be put to death to be the only offering that will atone for their lives consecrated and set apart to evil, only evil, and only evil continually. The only offering that will atone for the sins of their lives, these wretched guests who have sanctified themselves to wickedness, the only atoning offering that will pay for their own sins is the offering of their own lives unto death. Here is the tragic theater, Théâtre Noir. Here is the tragic theater, the dark theater of the Lord's sacrifice. Those who come to the sacrifice are those to be sacrificed. Those invited to the Lord's altar are those laid upon the altar of the Lord. Those consecrated for this offering are those to be slain and laid on the altar. Victims of their own delusion. Victims of their own idolatry. Victims of their own evil heart of unbelief. Victims of their own perverse sanctification. Victims of the Lord's sacrifice who has consecrated them on the altar, on the altar labeled. The wages of sin is death. Will they not be surprised on the day of the Lord's sacrifice? 
Will they not be amazed to be seized by the hand of the Lord who invited them and bound over to death on the altar consecrated to receive their gifts, but consecrated to the altar receiving their very own body and soul as the penalty for their life of sin and shame and idolatrous narcissistic pride and arrogance. The theater of the absurd is the theater of God's great sacrifice, his very own bonfire of the vanities. And in that theater and upon that vain altar will be burned up all that is a stench in his nostrils, all that smolders and flames with offense to his holiness, all that sends up the smoke of idolatry, syncretism, apostasy, atheism, all that parades itself as consecrated anthropocentrism in defiance of theocentrism and Christocentrism. Hush, hush, God has prepared a great sacrifice, an altar upon which he will consume sinners in a theater whose marquee reads, the holy anger of the Lord upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, women, and children. Verse 8 contains the other half of the mirror chiasm. The chiasm which we pointed out in verse 7 Lord sacrifice is reversed here to sacrifice Lord. You will also notice that verse 8 repeats the Yom Yahweh, the day of the Lord phrase. The verb that is used here means in its root form, visit. But when it is followed in the Hebrew by the preposition on or upon, it has the sense, the sense of visit on or visit upon, meaning to punish, as the New American Standard translates it. The direct object of the verb are three categories of guests. Three categories of guests at the Lord's sacrifice. The princes or political bureaucrats, the sons of the king or royal bluebloods, and the fashion plates, that is, those who crave the latest expensive foreign fabrics to make a statement about their vanity, their wealth, and their status. Zephaniah puns or plays two words from the same root in that latter case. Literally, all those garmenting themselves all those garmenting themselves from foreign garments. As they have demonstrated their political foolishness, their bureaucratic idiocy, so they will be sacrificed on the altar of their own political connivance and corruption. As they have cooperated in the defiance of the word of, the God, of, word of God by their fathers, so the sons of the king will be brought face to face with the Lord's altar of death. King Zedekiah's sons were, in fact, brought face to face with death 
executed in front of their father's eyes by Nebuchadnezzar, 2 Kings 25, verse 7, Jeremiah 39, verse 6. All these elites, these children of royalty, these chic, dressy sophisticates, all these will be guests of the Lord for whom elitism is as pride. Blue blood royalty amounts to no reputation. And classy fashion in vogue is as filthy rags. Idolaters who are bureaucratic politicians, idolaters who are royal scions, idolaters who are vapid fashion edicts, hush, be silent. You are the sacrifice for the day of the Lord. Idolaters who are politicians and bureaucrats who have sacrificed integrity for the idolatry of political expediency and tyranny, they will themselves be sacrificed at the Lord God's altar. They will not escape. Idolaters who are royal scions who have sacrificed high-born privilege for the idolatry of royal power, profligacy, and depravity they will themselves be consumed at the Lord God's altar. Idolaters who are vapid fashion addicts, who have sacrificed modest and adequate dress for the idolatry of faddish show and self-centered display, oftentimes not even having enough to cover their modesty, they will themselves be stripped bare on the day of the Lord God's sacrifice. Now, verse 9 continues to unfold the drama of the day of the Lord's sacrifice called that day here in verse 9. By duplicating the verb punish or visit upon from verse 8, as we noted earlier. It also duplicates a prepositional phrase, which is also found in verse 8, upon all. Thus, Zephaniah has skillfully crocheted these remarks of verse 9 into the seamless narrative he has concatenated from verse 7. These are more of the particular guests summoned to the Lord's sacrifice. They are idolaters as those in verses 7 and 8 were idolaters. Participants in the types of idolatry enunciated in verses 4, 5, and 6. But there is a challenge in this ninth verse. The challenge of verse 9 is to understand the actions described here with a given form or a given style of idolatry. We have noticed that Zephaniah utilizes a form of dark irony when he describes these idolaters. He labels them guests at God's sacrifice. He calls them sanctified or consecrated to the Lord's altar. He puns the faddish dress of some of them by a wordplay on the garments with which they are garmented. This is an ingenious parody. Even satire 
and dark theater. Théâtre noir. Here in verse 9, he continues with the motif of ironic parody and dark theater. The leapers. The leapers on or over the threshold are violent and deceitful. They are brutal, perhaps even murderers, and they are liars. In fact, they are serial liars. They are habitual liars. They are habituated to telling falsehoods and doing so publicly without any apparent conscience. They are by nature idolizers of falsehood. They are by nature idolizers of cruelty. They are by nature idolizers of superstition and delusion. Now the key to Zephaniah's irony here is that phrase, house of their Lord, where Lord is in the Hebrew text the word Adonai, which the prophet has used in verse 7 to refer to the true Adonai, Lord, who is God. And the house here in verse 9 is an ironic reference, a double entendre or double meaning to the house of the Lord, capital L, which is the temple in Jerusalem. Keep in mind what we already mentioned, the potential scene of Zephaniah's liturgical call to silence in verse 7. He is standing in the temple of Solomon. Capital T, house of the Lord, capital L. And what's he doing in this ninth verse? He's punning on that. He's drawing ironic attention to the house which he is addressing and to the Lord whom they adore. Small t, small l. Thus, these worshipers are actually ironic idolaters, and they are performing idolatrous worship, more irony, in the temple house of the Lord. But their Lord, small l, is Baal, verse 4. Their Lord, small l, is Moloch or Malcolm, verse 5. Their Lord, small l, is one of the astral deities, verse 5 again. In other words, they are crass idolaters, using the capital T temple of the capital L Lord for their devotion, sacrifices, and rituals. Or they are syncretists, using, again, their temple house as they redefine the temple of the Lord to worship Adonai, their small L Lord, under the form and through the graven images of Baal, Moloch, or the astral gods popular in Canaanite paganism. This whole section is a seamless narrative. It is a carefully constructed reflection upon the nature of idolatry and the styles of idolatry that were common in Jerusalem and Judea, 
in the time of Zephaniah and Josiah, and even before and after. Well, then what is this leaping on or over the threshold of the temple? The best suggestion to this challenging text is derived from 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, where we find recorded a similar Philistine pagan superstition. The story is that when Dagon, the Philistine idol, was found face down in front of the captured Ark of the Lord, the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold of his temple house. And thus, according to verse 5 of 1 Samuel 5, the priests of Dagon entering his house from then on, did not step on the threshold. In Hebrew, al-miptan. Al-miptan. They presumably stepped over the threshold or leaped over it. Now, in Zephaniah 1.9, these idolaters leap al-ha-miptan. Al-ha-miptan. The same phrase used in 1 Samuel 5, 5. The superstition about the favored idol's house or temple is either duplicated here, these idolaters step over or leap over the threshold to the house of their pagan god, or if they step on or leap on the threshold of the house of their pagan god, they do so to defy the superstition of the haunted or cursed threshold where they worship. In either case, whether they leap over or they leap on the threshold, it is a pagan fetish. It is a pagan fetish as an avoidance measure, avoiding some imagined curse identified with the threshold of a pagan house of worship a superstition stretching all the way back to the history of the days of Eli, Samuel, and the Philistine god Dagon, if not even before that. And the violence here? If it is Moloch who is being appeased, it is conceivable this is the incineration of living infants offered to his bloodlust. And lest we think that we 2014 Western civilization people are so enlightened and advanced, we have the news story from the United Kingdom this week of 15,000 miscarriages and aborted children fed into the incinerators to heat the hospitals in the National Health Service of the United Kingdom. Oh, and you think that we're so advanced and enlightened. And that was done by state or medical state decree. You think that active euthanasia is not far away? It is already present in Belgium. Removing those who are not useful to life. Children, adults even little children put to death by the decree of the state. 
and the deceit here in verse 9. It is a lie of pretending to worship Adonai, Lord God, while bowing low before the image of Baal, Moloch, or the astral deities. On the day of the Lord, these too will taste the dark sacrifice of their blasphemous superstition, their blasphemous violence, and their blasphemous lies. That brings us to verse 10, but by now you need to come up for air, and so we'll take a break and note that next week will be the last week of our series for this spring. Uh, We will break off uh, where we conclude in Zephaniah, and we'll pick up, Lord willing, again in the fall. So one more week, and then you will be free. Like we used to sing when school was out, school's out, school's out, teacher let the bulls out, etc., etc., etc. Well, you see, that takes me way, way back. Verse 10 is concatenated to verse 9 by the phrase, on that day. Reminding us once more, as incidentally we've been reminded in every verse from verse 7 on, reminding us of the thread of God's imminent judgment promised for the coming day of the Lord. Now this verse shifts from featuring the social groups destined for destruction to a sight-sound presentation. Sight-sound. Zephaniah brings to our imagination the sounds of approaching destruction and the sight of the venues in which this destruction will be unleashed. After the Lord's declaration in verse 10, he proceeds with three clauses which are organized in parallel or symmetrical fashion. Each clause begins with a sound, which is then followed by a geographical locale within the precincts of Jerusalem. The sound of destruction, the sight of destruction in the regions or districts of Jerusalem. Now, the first sound is the voice of crying. Crying from the region of the fish gate, which is a location in Jerusalem. So you want to write on your outline, crying on that first line, and fish gate as location. The second sound, which is also the second clause, is wailing. Wailing from the Mishnah district of the city, or some of your translations read second quarter, but the Hebrew term here is Mishnah, M-I-S-H-N-E-H. And that will be uh, clear when we take a look at the map 
later. The third sound in verse 10 is the echo of loud crashes. Crashes which echo and re-echo from the hills on the west side of the city of Jerusalem. These sounds are not the sounds of silence, Allah verse 7. No hush is heard in these districts of the city. There is crying and wailing and crashing of victims laid out at the Lord's sacrifice. This macabre scene, alive with sacrificial victims' death throes, is echoed and re-echoed in every district of the city. Crashing in upon our ears, blazoned forth before our eyes, are the sights and sounds of the day of the Lord. Zephaniah lets us see and hear, hear and see, the death wages of sin. The political connections of those in these regions will not deliver them. The royal lineage of those in these regions will not deliver them. The lavish garb of those in these regions will not cover them. The pagan religious rites of those in these regions will not deliver them. All over Jerusalem and to all in Jerusalem. The day of the Lord will be a day of the sight and sound of death. Death. Inexorable death. Now you have a map. Taken from Dan Bahat's marvelous Carta Atlas of Jerusalem, in which he lays out the form of the city before the destruction of 586 B.C. And he indicates three of the four regions that are recorded here in Zephaniah 1, 10, and 11. He does not place the fish gate on his map. If you look at the northwestern quadrant, you'll see a small square labeled tomb and underneath it quarry in the singular. It is approximately in that region where the fish gate is supposed to have existed. Fish gate then on the north side of the city. Fish gate where the fish markets or fish that was received from the Sea of Galilee and perhaps from the Mediterranean, was brought into the city. The fish gate in the direction on the wall, which is the most vulnerable direction for attacking Jerusalem, because on the west and on the south and on the east, Jerusalem is surrounded by deep valleys. The flat road into Jerusalem comes from the north. The Babylonians came from the north. The Assyrians under Sennacherib came from the north. That was the easy way to approach Jerusalem with sword and spear. Now you'll notice on the west side of the map are the hills. 
Now, these are low ridges which are below the level of the Temple Mount. You'll see the Temple Mount on the east side. Temple Mount is where Solomon's temple was erected. And you'll notice that dark line that goes around like a loop around the Temple Mount. That is the loop of the expansion of Jerusalem that was built during Solomon's reign. The smaller loop labeled City of David at the bottom of that larger loop is the original expanse of David's palatial city and confines. So the city was extreme, was significantly expanded during Solomon's age of wealth. And you'll notice the dark line that goes out to the west from below the city of David and comes around in a loop to meet up by Mount Moriah. That was the expansion of the city in the 8th and 7th century B.C. under Hezekiah and Manasseh. So that on the west side are these low-lying hills, and yet hills which are high enough to actually reverberate with the echoes of destruction. In between is this region called the Mishnah. At least that is the suggestion that Baha'u'llah makes in labeling this map. Now we'll talk about the Maktesh in a moment because it appears in verse 11, but you'll notice that between the hills and the Maktesh is this Mishnah, this Mishnah district. It's probably the district of the common people, at least the common people on the west side of the city. In other words, these are the streets of the ordinary, poor, and everyday uh, laboring class within the city. The Maktesh is a little bit different, and we'll comment upon the character of those who inhabited the Maktesh when we come to verse 11. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> Any questions about the map? Yes, Nancy. Did you say that the, the tombs were um, with the left side? If you're looking at the map, was that the left side? Were the tombs in the quarries? Was that where the fish came? Yeah, now, you see in, the, in that northwestern quadrant, on the left side, opposite temple, you see one word, you see one little block, one little square, tomb, and then underneath the word tomb, quarry, singular. Look, look. Look directly to the left of the temple. You see the, the block temple? Okay, you go to the left, almost in a straight line, and you'll see quarry, and above quarry is a little square labeled tomb. Okay, here it is. Right there. See, just to the left of the temple. Okay. It's probably in that region where the fish gate was. There are other uh, maps besides this one that do place the fish gate in a particular position, which is approximately where I've suggested it is on this map, though he does not locate it there. Randy? Where's the poor common folk? Where are they hanging out with you? Where is the what? The poor common folk. Mishnah, in the Mishnah, okay. Okay, which is in... Your translation, perhaps the second quarter in verse 10. Yes, Scott? So 
this is not a, it's not an aerial of the back drop is not an aerial of the present area. It's it's a it's a drawing even outside the city of what was presumed to be the roads there and the tombs and so forth. Yes. Uh, it, although it is overlaid with what you see underneath with the modern city. <clears throat> so, so those, those background gray areas are an attempt to trace out <clears throat> the old city between the time of David and, and the destruction in 586. This map is from about 1000 B.C. to 586 B.C. <clears throat> and to, to give you perspective if you are living in Jerusalem today as to where some of these things were, and in fact some of them have been excavated. So it, that, that, those roads outside Jerusalem and so forth, those are the, kind of an aerial of today's... Correct, story, correct. Oh, okay, okay so, so he's serving two purposes there. He's serving the purpose of, of a, a Hebrew or Jew living in Jerusalem today. We say, well, if I go down this street, you know, where am I near... Manasseh's wall or Hezekiah's wall or, or, the, or the Temple Mount. Of course, the Temple Mount is self-defined. <clears throat> and so it now is the city of David because Eilat Mazar has, has uh, claimed that she's discovered some of the foundation stones for David's temple, David's palace, rather. Yes, Pete? Uh, where is the third one? These, the uh, west side of Jerusalem, you said... Yeah, the west side is the hills. The loud crash in verse 10 is coming from the hills which are on the west side. You can see it's labeled there. You see the hills on the west side of the city? Oh, I see the hills. It's a fairly long ridge, but it's a a ridge. It's a rolling hill. It's not high. It's definitely not higher than Temple Mount. So you'd still be going up as you went to the east from these hills. Nonetheless, there's enough of a dip in between that you get a bit of a reverberation from the crashing of the destruction which was occurring in that hill, hillside region. In 586 B.C. In 586 B.C. This map ends with 586 B.C. All right, on to verse 11, which continues and concludes the sight, sound, pattern of verse 10, with the hook word, whale, followed by Maktesh, the Maktesh district. All right, now, you look at your map, and you can see the Maktesh right there on the west side of the city of David and the Temple Mount. It's along that wall which forms the outer boundary of uh, Jerusalem in this period down to 586. Now, in this verse, in verse 11, the last two lines of that verse are inaugurated by a key clause, which is, as we've learned, a because clause or a for clause. Why will there be wailing in the Maktesh district of Jerusalem? Because, notice the duplicate all or kal as well in Hebrew, because all kal, the people of Canaan, will be hushed to silence and all kal, the silver merchants, will be cut off. 
key clause and then duplicate call clauses. All right, now, there are two features of Zephaniah's rhetoric in this verse to observe. First of all, there is an alliterative and alliterative K sound in the Hebrew text. Five of the 12 words in this Hebrew verse begin with the same K or kaf consonant. Emphatic alliteration or repetition of the same sound. Second, the last two lines of this verse following the because word, the key clause, are identical in form. On your outline, you'll notice that I have laid it out for you. Zephaniah writes a verb in the nifal, which is the passive voice of the Hebrew verb system. A verb in the nifal plus kal, or the word all, plus two additional words. And he duplicates that exactly, so that these last two lines are exactly parallel. They use different verbs, and they use different extra words, but nonetheless, they have the same form. So in English, it would go something like this. Silenced, the nifal verb, all people of understood Canaan. Two words, people, Canaan, people of Canaan, understood, the of understood. That would be the first line. The second line would be the verb cut off, just one word in Hebrew, all, call again, plus two words, weighers of understood silver, weighers silver of understood. Perfect symmetrical form. Now, realizing that the prophet is using Hebrew parallelism in these two lines, we understand that the weighers of silver are parallel, symmetrical to the people of Canaan. This may seem strange, but Zephaniah is playing upon etymology here. He's playing upon the etymological significance of the word Canaan, or Canaan. One of its original nuances was merchant traders. Merchant traders. Thus, the Mactes section or region, which is about to howl and wail in the day of the Lord, the Mactes district was a region devoted to merchant and economic trade and finance. Here, in this region, were the sights and sounds of those weighing out and trading silver, money, and goods which that wealth procured. The shouts and cries of those engaged in economic exchange, as you may hear on the New York Stock Exchange or the floor of the Chicago Commodity Market, Those sounds will become howls and wails. The howls and wails of life sold cheap and worthless unto death. What will it benefit you on the hour of your death that you have a million dollars in the bank? You will not buy your way from the grim reaper.
It will profit, profit you nothing on the day of your demise. The day of the Lord is near. The economic barons of Jerusalem have been alerted. The financial district of the Maktesh is going to be destroyed. Your money will stand you in no stead on that day of judgment. Now, let us step back, take another deep breath, and summarize our work on Zephaniah for tonight. Verses 7 to 11 of chapter 1 are a carefully crafted literary and rhetorical section of this Hebrew prophecy. Each discrete unit of this first chapter has been skillfully written and brilliantly expressed in Hebrew idiom. The whole of the five verses of this section, namely verses 7 to 11, relate to and are concatenated with the previous description of the downward spiral of idolatry and its consequences. The general worldwide idolatry of worshiping man and beast, verses 2 and 3, will be judged a work of darkness, tohu wabohu, and to darkness, tohu wabohu, God will consign it. The particular nationwide idolatry of Judah and Jerusalem in verses 4 to 6, worshiping Baal, the astral deities, Moloch or Malcolm, as he's called here, idolatrous apostasy and atheism, that will be swallowed up in darkness, which is the very mirror of its godless nature. Now, now this downgrade climaxes at verse 7, with the hand of God's wrath against the facilitators and devotees of this idolatrous, God-displacing and God-replacing adoration, obsession, prostration, prostitution. The parody of the gathering for destruction is cloaked under the invitation to a sacrifice of the Lord. Only at this celebration, the guests will be the victims. Those bringing offerings will be the offering. Those consumed with gods other than the Lord Adonai will be consumed by God the Adonai. This Théâtre Noir unfolds in doubled key clauses, verse 7. In mirror chiasm with subsequent punishment detailed in all clauses in verse 8, thrice over is concatenated with punishment directed at three types of idolatrous practice and all clauses twice over in verse 9. The dark theater unfolds in the fury of the day of the Lord in sound and sight with three clauses of death sounds followed by locales of Jerusalem where the destruction concomitant with the sounds will be seen, verse 10. Verse 11 reprises the sound sight pattern one last time and follows with alliterative clauses employing the reduplicated call, 
to emphatically place an exclamation point to the sections of Jerusalem which will be cut off in the fury of God's just indignation and destruction. The the financial quarter which concludes this tour is last. From whence flows the money and wealth to finance and indulge this idolatrous hedonism, this idolatrous narcissism, this idolatrous autonomy. The pattern of doublets and triplets in this section is a rhetorical underscoring and exclamation point upon the emphatic finality of the day of the Lord upon Judah and Jerusalem, upon that generation that perished in 586 B.C. on account of their profligate, profuse, and profane idolatry. Zephaniah's rhetoric draws out the specific of God's turning the idolatry of those who claim to follow and worship him. In fact, a pretense, a chimera of duplicity, turning that to black darkness, the black darkness of annihilation. These Judeans, themselves the sacrificial lambs at God's great altar. From the ranks of political figures, lambs for the slaughter. From the bloodline of kings, lambs for the slaughter. From the elitists with their ornate and lavish fashion statements, lambs for the slaughter. From the Kemarim, idolatrous priests who practice their superstition in the house of the Lord, adding deceit to the violence of their vile pagan rites, lambs for the slaughter. From all the leaders of religion, leaders of fashion, leaders of royalty, leaders of the bureaucracy, from all these will arise cries and wails and crashes of devastation from every region of Jerusalem, all the locales of Mount Zion echoing and re-echoing with shrieks and screams and groans. The sounds of death, the sights on location of death, sights and sounds from the worship of dead idols, from sacrifice to lifeless images from this holocaust erupts the sacrifice of the idolaters and the fish gate, the Mishnah, the hills, the Maktesh, flush with the sounds of death rising with the smoke of their destruction, not as a sweet savor to the Lord, but as a foul stench ascending to heaven. Hush indeed. The day of the Lord's sacrifice is near. Beware the lie of human autonomy and self-sufficiency where you sacrifice your ardor and devotion and person to the evil pleasures of this evil age in self-adulation, self-satisfaction, self-absorption, self, self, self. What a godless idol is self. Beware, you who have offered yourselves up to this empty idol. The day of the Lord is at hand. 
the day of the Lord, when you will be sacrificed in an offering to his just wrath. Hush, that day is near. It is as near as your last breath. Any questions about this unit? You will notice I held off on any good news from this section. There is, in fact, no good news from this unit. It is the sound and sight of death. Yes, Marge. You mentioned that um, on the day of the Lord, the guests will be the sacrifice. And you said the only offering that will atone for their own sins are their own lives. In what what way are they atoning for their own sins? I'm using the word atone there to mean make payment for. Not to cover it over but to simply make payment for it. So what is due will be paid by the offering of their own lives. But of course, I'm not uh, uh, here penetrating into the eternal aspect of it. I'm simply looking at the finality of what comes with physical death when they die in the destruction of Jerusalem. I could I could extend it to the, to the latter, but I'm... I'm, I'm <clears throat> I'm uh, restricting myself to his imagery. So in that sense, I'm not denying anything orthodox in the offing either. Okay, I'm just simply not commenting on it. Okay? I'm, I'm letting it lie for the, the force and the impact of the rhetoric and the imagery that is here. I promise you a different message next week. Because verses 12 and 13 have a different message. But it also means we have to look more deeply into the concept of the day of the Lord, which David raised earlier in the first hour. So um, we want to do that. And I intend to uh, plumb the depths of that prophetic concept. On that note, the clock strikes nine. It's time to bow and pray. Our Father, your word is indeed a lamp unto our feet. And in these dark areas of the depths of the depravity of idolatry, we thank you that your word has shined light upon the character and nature of that vile practice, bringing to our attention the fact that this godless kind of adoration did not disappear with the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Zephaniah still speaks. After 2,500 years, he still speaks. And he speaks to us about the gift of God himself to his creation. The gift of the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior to this fallen creation. The gift of the Holy Spirit of regeneration and rebirth to the new creation in Christ Jesus. We close with thanksgiving for those grace gifts, which are the gifts of life and not death, the sounds of joy and song 
and rejoicing for those in the church of Christ and before the throne of the Lamb. Send us on our way then, sobered and yet thankful that we do not bow down to idols, not abstract in ourselves and not concrete outside of ourselves. We bow down to Adonai Yahweh, his son Jesus Christ, and the blessed Holy Spirit of God the Father and God the Son. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.